folks, welcome to this week's episode of The Boundless Show. I am Lisa Anderson here with you, and as I often like to do, a little preview of what is coming up later on for our inbox. We have a listener who's frustrated by the amount of people that she knows who are struggling with porn addiction and wants to know how can she respond when someone confesses a struggle to her. Well, one of our counselors, Jeremy Keaton, is going to weigh in on that. And then for our culture segment... Counselor Glenn Lutchens and my friend Christine Snyder are here to discuss what to do when the person you're dating has a serious sin pattern or just how do you find out what's in people's pasts and whether or not you can um, work with that, continue dating them, whatever. So we're going to break it all down. Um, Christine actually has a lot of personal experience in this. And of course, Glenn is going to weigh in with some expert advice. So stay tuned for that. Okay, here we are for our roundtable, and we thought it might be good for those of you who are marriage-minded, hoping to be married someday. Uh, what does it look like to show humility in marriage? And I know uh, a lot of people, I mean, first off, we got to say like, hello, can we show some humility while we're single? Uh, that might be helpful. So <laughs> that's the that's start. Maybe that'll be my contribution to this uh, this conversation. But we also have Roger, Hannah, and Michael here. Hey, y'all. Hi. Hello. Hello. Um, all of them married. So this is going to be expert boots on the ground experience. Um, I will say as a precursor, um, Michael in at the uh, the youngest marriage of eight months. Correct. Yes, that's correct. Okay, Hannah clocking in at nine. Yep. Okay, <laughs> heading towards a, a one year, and Roger with like two hundred and seventy or what, what? How many years now, Roger? Just, just forty-five in May. forty-five. Okay, yeah. <laughs> forty-five. So excellent. So we've got a great breadth of experience here. So um, I, I want to, you know, and I, I only half jokingly said, you know, really, we all need to be exhibiting humility and clearly we can read uh, Philippians 2 we can read various passages of scripture and know that in imitating Christ we imitate his attributes and by being plugged into the vine and abiding in him is how we will get the fruit of the spirit and so that's something we all have to avail ourselves of but talking specifically about dating and then marriage what um i mean let's let's talk a little bit did y'all let's just be honest here did you think going into marriage that you were a pretty humble person and you were going to kind of have this locked in <laughs> or what? <laughs> and then maybe it was your significant other that maybe had a few things to work on. Or where did you feel like where where was the the barometer in that relational humility for you? I remember going through premarital counseling and I mean, you discuss a variety of topics in premarital counseling, and a lot of them relate to communication, to conflict, to how you're going to tackle these things. And I remember thinking, which I'm laughing at myself now, I remember thinking like, oh, yeah, we'll have problems in marriage. Of course, yeah, but I won't be the source of them. <laughs> and now I'm like, wow, ouch, that was super selfish. And yeah, I mean, even in these nine months, I've discovered that I'm super selfish in a lot of ways. And I mean, we're both sinners coming in to marriage. So yeah, I think I definitely had a mindset of like, yeah, we get along great. We love each other. Um, we're not going to have a lot of problems. Or if we do, we can work through them. And certainly that is the case. You know, we can work through things. But mm -hmm. I, I definitely had the mindset of I'm humble. It's I funny how we immediately think that it's like a communication issue. Like we think, you know, all we need to do is communicate better or be willing to speak our minds or whatever. We rarely want to bring up like, actually, there might be some sin there, too. Um, we'll see how that <laughs> yeah. plays into this. But yeah. yeah, it's not just a tactical problem necessarily. But Michael, how about you? Yeah, for me as well. I went through premarital counseling as well. And for me, I found out pretty early in dating that I was a prideful per I was a very prideful person. <laughs> um, so I actually went to premarital counseling knowing that I was going to be like working on this pride issue that I had. So um, with Lauren and I, we like had conversations and then I would get defensive and then I wouldn't want her to be right. And so I was like, dang, this is something we need to work on before we get <laughs> married. So um, going into it, I would say Lauren was definitely like amazing and I was a prideful one for sure <laughs> um, and now after marriage and like going through all that counseling I feel like we've been doing a lot better but I still obviously have issues so yeah I'm still working on it regularly so okay Roger well <clears throat> interesting having been married for 45 years and having done pre-marriage counseling for about 39 of those I've learned a few things along the way that uh, that I could see in other people but 
uh, when we started, I didn't see some of the stuff that I had to deal with. Uh, I did have somebody one time tell me he was actually my mentor and has been my mentor for 48 years. Uh, he made the comment, he goes, everybody thinks Diane is a 10, but I know better. And it was like, what the heck? And so so I had almost like his blessing to say it was going to be all her. Wow. But the reality was um, we knew, and I dated Diane for, for five years. And so it is a lot of communication. You've already, you've already talked about that. But uh, in our case, because we dated as long as we did, we had worked out a lot of the that stuff in the early years of our dating. And so moving into marriage was much easier. Okay. So what would you guys say? I mean, let's get, you know, kind of practical here. And, and Michael, you, you kind of did share. <laughs> let's just share our stuff. Okay. <laughs> let's get, <laughs> no, what are, get, let's give some examples of what are some areas where you were surprised maybe about where you wanted to dig your heels in or something mm-hmm. where pride crept in, or all of a sudden it's like, uh, no, I am totally right about this, and I will fight this to the death. And you are wrong, and you're messed up. And you're so. Where where would you say are some of the common traps in marriage that people will find uh, it hard to put the other person above themselves? I would say that um, finances has a lot to do with that. Um, for for us, that's something that was really hard for me to like let go. Um, after getting married. Um, Laura and I, like, I always wanted to make more money than her because I wanted to be the provider and I Mm. felt like I had to be. And so I was working in sales in the corporate world and it was a very toxic environment. And um, the opportunity came up for me to work here at Focus on the Family. And I was like, there's no way I could do that because, like, I'm going to be making less than her. So, (laughs) um, so I, you know, Laura and I talked about it for a while. And um, for me, that was so hard. Like I was just digging my heels. I was like, I can't do that. I can't do that. And I felt God pushing me to make that decision. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know what, like maybe I should just trust God. And, Mm -hmm. um, here I am at focus now, (laughs) obviously. And it's the most amazing decision I've ever made. Mm -hmm. But the way that that's helped our marriage has been amazing. Just like her seeing that for me and like giving something up that was really important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've seen it too in myself, like how much it's like, um, helped our marriage and just helped us to get along. So yeah. mm-hmm. little, uh, caveat to that based on what you said, isn't it amazing how, when we actually trust God, like good things happen, <laughs> it's yeah, like, that's, that's always true. our last Amen. resort, you know, like, let me work it out myself. And then when things get really crazy or out of control, well, I guess I'll have to bring God into it. Okay. Whatever. Yeah. It's so crazy where we go there. So. Yeah, good, you know, good we have a tendency to <clears throat> depends on how we actually define humility, because the tendency, as soon as we talk about humility in a marriage or humility in a dating environment, we have a tendency to think that it's something that's almost negative mm-hmm. because some because there was a problem mm-hmm. and now I have to humble myself. But humility also takes on another form, and that is humbling ourselves and recognizing you know, God's sovereignty in our lives, recognizing God has gifted my wife in areas that he didn't gift me in, and actually being willing and able to say, you know what, and it's a a phrase that I often use when we're we're, uh, working with young couples, and that is this, when you get to a place where you can say, you are more important to me than me, that's humility. It's it's saying that my focus is is to be on you and what your needs are and what your gifting is and how God wants to use me to enhance your your life. Diane has a phraseology. She uses it this way. It says it's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And she uses that even in hospitality training here at Focus on the Family. Mm-hmm. And and that's humility as well, even to the point of when we had babies. Mm-hmm. Understanding that, hey, Diane would get up and she would take care of the baby. She would nurse at two o'clock in the morning. But to humble myself and say, this is our child. This is our, there, there's equal need here. And so I would burp and change diapers and put back to bed and that kind of thing. Those kind of things are also acts of humility. It's not always, it's not always a stigma that came from something that was negative and I had to humble myself. Mm-hmm. But those things are real as well. Mm-hmm. So. You remind me of, uh, I remember my pastor saying one time that I think it was around the time of our church's women's retreat. And a couple of women had said to him, well, I would love to go, but I have to find out if my 
husband would be willing to babysit the kids. And I remember our pastor went to the men and he's like, yeah, uh, husbands, these are like your kids. It's not babysitting. It's called parenting. So, (laughs) you know, just uh, watch your own kids. Okay. Anyway, but Hannah, what would you add as far as practical examples? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, for Gabriel and I, it comes down to everyday things of putting the other person first and and not necessarily thinking that your way is right. Um, And a lot of it, is patterns that we just had when we were single and maybe living with roommates in college. Um, Yeah, just different patterns that you develop. I remember when we first came back from our honeymoon, we went to the grocery store and we went to like maybe a high-end grocery store that had less things. But when we got there, Gabriel's expectation was that we were just going to get a few choice things. Um, It was Trader Joe's, I guess I can say that. (laughs) It wasn't like Walmart. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, and so... We were just going to get a few like fun, unique things. But I was there like, oh, we're going to grocery shop. Mm. And I remember in the middle of the aisle, him being like, why are you getting all of this stuff? Or why? <laughs> and I'm like, well, we're grocery shopping. And so I, we just had different expectations going in. And um, it took me a while to realize like, oh, my way isn't always right. And I need to put him first in a lot of things or, or be willing to talk about it. So yeah, I think it comes down to practical everyday things for mm-hmm. us. Yeah, that's true. And that's a great uh, training ground for a lot of stuff, especially, you know, as you think of stuff that further down the road, as Roger would probably say, you know, harder things may come up, things involving other people, all of a sudden kids are in the mix. So, okay, well, let's um, dial it back a little bit in time and talk about for the people who are out there dating or maybe hoping to be dating, um, you know, certainly a person of humble character is someone to be looking for in a potential spouse. It's going to save you a world of hurt. You know, again, it's not going to solve all your problems because you're also part of the problem. So let's just be honest. Okay. But you want (laughs) to find someone who uh, really does uh, want to put others first and and want to model Christ in this. What are some things to look for as you're dating? Because clearly you can't just get all up in one another's business as a dating couple, or, you know, you certainly can't look into a crystal ball. So, but what would be some, some signs or signals? I would say that listening and acknowledging are two quality traits that I like to like say how I would describe humility. I mean, for me, especially like whenever I listen and acknowledge to Lauren, I feel like that's whenever she really like starts to connect with me and, you know, we're able to have a conversation that's productive. Hmm. So I feel like if there's somebody who's listening and acknowledging somebody and actually like taking what they have to say to heart and like respecting that, then that's a really good sign of humility. Um, it also shows just um, how much they care about that person because mm-hmm. if somebody says something and you don't listen to them and you don't acknowledge them, then they're going to feel pretty hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, if you listen to them and don't acknowledge it, they're going to feel you know not very important or what they had to say was important. Mm-hmm. So I feel like those two things go hand in hand is listening and acknowledging. And I, I would say that's like kind of the two main things I would look for mm-hmm. um, in humility. So. Mm. I remember when our <clears throat> daughter asked, well, how do you know if this is the one? And I remember saying, um, you find somebody who's humble. You find somebody who has a heart for Christ and his word. And you find somebody who's teachable. Mm-hmm. If you can get those qualities, that's a that's a great place to start because then you have somebody who has the Holy Spirit that could actually do the work that needs to be done on the pride or arrogance or the negative aspects of, of lack of humility. Mm-hmm. Because even Scripture tells us that if we will humble ourselves, the end result is wisdom. But if we dig in our in our heels, well, the end result could be discipline too. So which do we prefer? Yeah. That's good. Well, and remembering that the goal is not to work the Holy Spirit out of a job. That's right. Um, there man. are yeah. some things that only he can do. We try to be other people's Holy Spirit. I have tried it many times. It does not work. I will tell you that from firsthand experience. So, yeah, it's a tricky position that we try to put ourselves in. But, yeah. Yeah, I would agree. I think uh, I would totally piggyback off of that and say somebody who's teachable and who listens well. Um, And even I think most of dating is just seeing how people react and interact in different seasons of life with Mm -hmm. different people, different challenges um, and celebrations and things like that. Um, So yeah, I would just keep a watchful eye on how they treat people around them, how they treat their family Mm -hmm. um, and things like that. I would totally agree with Roger and Michael. 
Yeah. Even, I mean, and not to get too like weird five love languagey or whatever, but, you know, acts of service, I think are big. The people that are constantly looking to like include others, to help others, to give of their time and their resources and their energy. I mean, that's just a great, especially when it's done, you know, assuming that no one's looking and stuff. That's just a great um, aspect of humility, I think, that often goes unnoticed. So, Well, you know, sometimes in a marriage, Lisa, that you have the, you know, we hear the verse, wives, submit to your husbands. And people think that's such a negative thing when in reality, this is something that a wife does willfully. And it's and it's an act of humility, acknowledging the headship and the responsibility that comes with headship that God gives uh, a man within a marriage context. But scripture doesn't end there. It says, be submissive one to another. So this idea of us humbling ourselves to one another and then before the Lord um, if you could practice that in a dating relationship as well as throughout a marriage relationship, again, considering others is more important than ourselves, uh, the value is unestimable when it comes to its value. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, one question I often like to ask married people um, when I have you on the round table, which doesn't really have to do necessarily with humility, but I'm going to throw it out to all y'all anyway. I remember asking Gary Thomas this and a couple other quote unquote marriage experts. But as you look into marriage, whether you're just months in or years and years in, decades in for Roger, um, (laughs) what would you say? Kind of a two-sided question. Now, knowing what you know now in marriage what has been maybe a um, an unmet expectation or a disappointment or something that, you know, didn't pan out, you know, maybe the, the Hollywood picture you thought it was going to be, something that you, has been hard? And then what is an unexpected great surprise in marriage that you weren't prepared for that all of a sudden you're like, this is really good, this is really legit, and it's something that is a real blessing to me? I guess something unexpected that has been hard, which a lot of people talk about it, but I think it's conflict in general and the fact that you can't run away. Mm-hmm. I am very averse, if that's the word. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't do well with conflict. And so when Gabriel and I maybe get into an argument or a discussion, I just want to like hide away. But it's been a great growing experience to say, no, I, we have made this covenant together and I'm going to stick by you and I... I can't leave. We live together. <laughs> so <laughs> mm-hmm. I, um, yeah, that has been something that I didn't think about before going into marriage. And maybe I wasn't told enough about it, or maybe I just chose to look look at it through rose-colored glasses. But I think one of the greatest joys, or the I guess the thing that brings me the most joy in marriage is I just am finding more and more every day that Gabriel, my husband, is my best friend. Like mm-hmm. we laugh about so many things together and um, just doing life together and not having to make decisions on my own anymore. Um, I didn't think about that before marriage that, you mm-hmm. know, you really are one and you do the rest of life together. So that's been mm-hmm. a really sweet joy. That's cool. I think I kind of expected coming from my family background and and watching Diane over five years in her family background, I expected her to be more like her family, uh, which really meant she was less like my family. And so the expectation that I had uh, that I thought was going to be a real struggle uh, really wasn't the struggle. The, the wonderful surprise was that Diane, uh, having been honed and really developed uh, in her Christian walk, was able to separate herself far more effectively than I expected. Even though you 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 always bring some of those those experiences from your family um, with you, but when I when I think of the real blessing that comes along with uh, being married, and what I experienced was, I remember saying in our in our uh, wedding, uh, I had the opportunity to address all. Now, all Italian families that were at this (laughs) wedding and the expectations that they would have, um, I remember saying, um, I can't wait for maybe in five years or so, or 10, maybe 15, inviting you all back so that you can see what a Christian marriage actually will be like. That was something I said, having just entered into marriage. Uh, But the, the beauty of that was the expectation of what that should look like, it actually became. Mm. Because 
I cannot believe that, and many times as I've said to uh, young couples, you'll be shocked that when you think how much you love this person you're marrying on that day, how much more you'll love them just even after the honeymoon, let alone five years, 10 years, 15, in our case, 45 years later. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's a phenomenal experience to have love grow like that almost unexpectedly, and yet really by God's design as two people walk as a as a unity um, uh, before the Lord. So mm-hmm. that's that's been the blessing in our lives. I love her a heck of a lot more after 45 years mm-hmm. than I did after... Uh, you know, That's one. Cool. So okay, you still have to think of your hard thing, though. But I can go to Michael first. And okay, go. You, okay, Jeez. Michael, you go ahead, and then Roger yeah. has to talk about forty-five years. <laughs> forty-five years of turmoil. There's too no. many. There's too many. <laughs> just, just keep it to you, Roger, not yeah. Diane. So yeah. you, no, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I would say that um, kind of like what you were talking about, Hannah. I think um, something that I expected going into marriage was thinking that oh, like whenever I have something that I want to bring up, like some sort of conflict or argument that Lauren's just going to argue back and we're going to have like a super um, good argument because growing up in my family, that's kind of how we were. Arguments were just kind of normal and they didn't necessarily mean bad things. <laughs> um, but Lauren, is um, her personality type is to kind of retreat, mm. um, just like you were talking about, Hannah. And um, that's something that I've been learning through. Uh, it's definitely been hard and it's definitely been also really refreshing just the fact that I'm learning how she deals with conflict and how it's different than how I grew up so um, I've really been learning uh, about that and just learning how to like just wait and listen and let her process the information before she has an answer Mm -hmm. rather than me saying come on and just answer already Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, so that's been really good and I think one of the most amazing things about marriage that I've noticed is uh just how supportive Lauren is and how every decision I make and every idea that I have, um, whether it's good or bad, she'll, um, she'll tell me like her opinion on it, but she'll also support me in whatever decision I make. And that's just been like the most amazing thing just to have that support and she believes in me and I don't know what I would do without that now. And so I'm so thankful for that and just how willing she is to be there for me. And just like you said, Hannah, as well, she, like she's my best friend mm-hmm. and I love, I enjoy doing life with her. So that's great. All right, Roger. The hardest thing. Yeah. I think you kind of hit on as I, as I think about it is how I do battle and how I do life and the way Diane approaches it. To Diane, life is, it doesn't matter what the situation is, she will always conclude, this is fun. <laughs> and to me, life can get quite serious, especially when, when much like uh, voiced earlier, you know, as, as the provider, as the head of the household, you know, taking on that responsibility before the Lord, uh, for her to look at life as being all fun, and that's how she deals with life, and it's a wonderful place to be mm-hmm. where I take things far more serious. And so the conflicts that that could create in our life, mm-hmm. what I think I discovered as being the hardest thing is the way I do battle. Mm. Um, I'm Southern Italian and in our household, everything is, is loud and in your face and it's all <laughs> out on the, on the table and we deal with it and we move on. That's, that was my background for Diane. The first time she came to our home, she said, gosh, you know, after, after she visited, I said, so, what was that like for you? She said, "Guy, all your family does is yell at each other." And I go, "What are you talking about?" She said, "She said it just was nonstop. Everybody's voice was." I said, "Honey, that we were just communicating." And that's and and I think that was the biggest struggle because her family was more, you know, until you can talk civilly and calm about this, you go to your room and when you're ready to discuss it in a mm. civil manner, and that is was so foreign to me. Mm-hmm. I'm let's get it out on the table, let's deal with it, uh-huh. let's get it done, let's move on. Uh-huh. Where Diane was, let's don't deal with it in that manner because that's just going to shut me down, uh-huh. and and let me just think that life is going to all be rosy. Mm-hmm. So she would do this. Diane would say. Okay, I apologize. And I said, wait a minute, what are you, what are you apologizing for? <laughs> and it would be like an apology because of a conflict. But my opinion was, you're just doing this, so I'll shut up and this will be over. <laughs> Where I had to process it and I had to go through it. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably one of the most, and actually 45 years 
later we still with deal with moments like that yeah. Uh, yeah. depending on the subject now it deals with children and grandchildren and yeah, you know sure. retirement and all that stuff yeah but well, i think that's... that was probably the most difficult for me yeah good thoughts so well you guys thank you so much it's always crazy how fast this time goes and we almost run out of time and whatever but i think this has given folks listening hopefully all y'all listening some food for thought as you date and as you consider marriage and uh, great wisdom for folks who are in it so thanks much thank, thank you. you thank you the first day that i took a breath i woke up already blessed been with me ever since Folks, we are here for this week's culture segment. And, uh, you know, sometimes when we come up with topics here at Boundless, they're born out of us having conversations with people, observing things that people have said, you know, whatever. It just kind of is like real life. I mean, as though I always tell guests when they come, like, just pretend we're sitting in someone's living room talking about whatever, you know. And so um, sometimes we do and we let you listen in and hopefully glean some good wisdom from it. And so today's going to be kind of an interesting conversation because I invited my friend Christine Snyder here. Hey, Christine. Hi, Lisa. Because <laughs> we were on a panel together a couple months back where we were talking about dating and relationships and stuff. And Christine, spoiler alert, was basically her husband, Phil, was there too. And she made reference to the fact that, or maybe it was the guy hosting the panel, moderating, who said, well, yeah, like, didn't you um, just straight up, like, in the first date or something, ask your husband, like, when was the last time he viewed porn? And everyone is just like, whoa, over a latte, whatever. Okay. And, but it was so funny because it made me think of, like, Christine and I have shared some dating war stories and our escapades as single women of getting to know guys. And we're like, you know what, in this culture, in this day and age, in this climate, and with everyone and where they're coming from, sometimes you got to have some hard conversations. And some of it's born out of struggles and hardships that we've gone through. And some of it is just like where people are today. And so, um, Christine, we're going to talk through with her uh, kind of this idea of just like, taking on people's stuff, uh, sinful patterns. I mean, obviously, we're not just pointing fingers here about like, it's all everyone else's problem. Um, But what that looks like in relationships, and how you can get the information you need, because there are a lot of liars and posers out there and whatever. Um, And also joining us is our fantastic counselor, Glenn Lechens. Hey, Glenn. Hi, Lisa. Well, it's always good to have Glenn. And so we thought we would bring both of them in. Uh, Christine is you know, going to share some of her story. Glenn, obviously, um, weighing in as an expert in so many of these areas, and me just kind of taking it all in and probably asking a ton of questions. So um, y'all ready for this? Yes. Okay. (laughs) Okay, here we go. And in my defense, I think I did wait to the second date. Oh, see, okay. (laughs) But it was definitely early on. (laughs) It was only the second date where we started talking about (laughs) porn. Okay, that's good. Um, So folks, wait till the second date. I mean, get that that first coffee date down. Okay, it's all good. No. (laughs) All right. Well, let's... And you have to know Christine, too, because she really is. You are just kind of matter of fact. You're going to put it out there, you know? You're not... (laughs) <laughs> she's she's great. my strings. Yeah, there you go. Okay, but let's talk a little bit about your history to begin with, Christine, because um, I'm just going to say, you know, in the interest of time, because we're just doing a segment here, Christine, you know, grew up in the church, married, that marriage ended, she was single, that's when I met her, and then she met this guy, Phil, who was on this panel, and they're now married, and he has kids from a previous marriage, and so she became an instant mom and treading into that space. Um, 
by day she's an OBGYN and so uh, a lot of a uh, lot of plates spinning in Christine's life but go ahead and take us back because clearly no one gets married and is like you know the one thing that's going to happen here is this is going to go down in a ball of flames and you know you always are aspirational to this being what God has ordained and it's going to last forever but tell us how that how that played out well trying to give you the brief version. Yeah. I married a man who was in recovery from alcoholism at the time. Mm -hmm. And we got married after just eight months of starting to date. And on the honeymoon, he started drinking again. And, um, and it continued from there. There were a lot of issues and solid reasons for biblical divorce. Mm -hmm. We were married for about five years. Mm -hmm. And, um, since then, um, it's been very helpful. I, during my 30s, through my 30s, I was single and did a lot of, went through some counseling mm-hmm. to try to shore up and deal with whatever issues that I had had that had contributed to that relationship and really have processed a lot about where I contributed or where things may have gone wrong, but dealing with some codependency issues that came out and that I've been able to process and heal from. Mm-hmm. And so I do have some experience in that background. Yeah. Well, let's start just with the alcoholism, because, I mean, were you dating and thinking to yourself or did anyone else weigh in and say, um, what about this alcohol problem? Because eight months isn't, you know, a long time. What do you think, Christine? Should you maybe wait? Should you find what did you have any like kind of checks? And then what caused you to override them? I think there were. A couple of times that one or two people did speak up. I honestly wish some of my close friends had pressed in more with it because in looking back, I was hiding things mm-hmm. about that that he I knew he was still struggling with. Mm. And he was in community and on the surface it looked good because he was in recovery, but it hadn't been very long. Mm-hmm. It, he had only been sober about two months even when we first met, a month or two. Okay. And, and so there were mistakes that were made. We, um, I wish that more people, more close friends of mine had spoken up and tried to encourage me to pause and give it more time. Mm-hmm. But I think the biggest, in retrospect, looking back, red flag on my side of things was that I was keeping some things back from my family and friends. They didn't even know the full picture. Yeah. Right. And and kind of, I mean, I've, I, that's, I've seen that play out in many different relationships, even to a lesser degree, where someone's like, oh, you know, well, I really want to paint a good picture of this guy because I want people to be excited. I want people to be happy for me. I want people to be, you know, to invite us into their circle of friends and this is all going to work out and stuff. And so, I mean, to me, that's, you know, that's understandable. Um, Glenn, let me bring you in here because I think, you know, again, is your day in and day out at Focus on the Family, counseling folks who are struggling with the ramifications of, you know, a lot of marital dysfunction or personal decisions, personal addictions and stuff like that. What is, I mean, you know, it sounds totally Pollyanna-ish to say, because you'll hear this from everyone, is like, okay, but everyone struggles, everyone has issues, everyone... What's the difference between, like, you're marrying broken people, but when does brokenness all of a sudden start a pattern of, like, we need to put the brakes on? Uh, That's where I think the the 20% rule comes into play. Whatever people may be dealing with during their dating, their courtship, whatever uh, format that takes, marriage is likely to be 20% more difficult, intense. It it ups the ante. Um, So if somebody is trying to put their best foot forward in a dating relationship, when you do see some of those challenge areas, those are really, really important to to look at. Um, I think so often it's kind of a, a metaphor, but it's hard to fix a car driving down the highway. When you're in the midst of the relationship, um, as much as we may want that other person to get the help that they need, they have a vested interest in kind of uh, maybe pursuing the help because they're they're interested in the relationship. So you really don't know what this other person will be like in the midst of, of marriage, just in the midst of 
the the daily stressors that may come their way and uh you know as difficult as it is because in a dating relationship there's an excitement Mm -hmm. you know you may feel good about the vast majority of the relationship Mm -hmm. but being able to see that if there are some of those areas the pause is a good thing and it may be a pause forever Mm-hmm. Or it may be a pause and uh, where God does a work in this person's life. Um, but I think there will be some things that show. Obviously, there could be times where a person seems like they're taking the best steps. There's a pause. It's taking place. You give it a good length of time. But there still could be some issues. I think probably one of the biggest components to that, though, is generally speaking, patterns of, of sin, addiction, it's a way of covering over pain. Mm-hmm. So is that person willing to face that? Or are they are they kind of white-knuckling it? Are they just trying to stop? Are they trying to just in their own power not do something, mm-hmm. uh, which tends to, I think, not work very well? Yeah. Well, and obviously a lot of hiding in that, you know, the the effort and the energy put into hiding and compensating is big, too. We know that. Okay, Christine, let's continue the story because when, okay, when you got married and you said that your first husband's drinking resumed on the honeymoon, was there, because in your story, we know, uh, we will know here that all of a sudden things started snowballing and other things began being uncovered. Was there any indication of any other addictions or strongholds during your dating? Any red flags that you should have noticed, but you didn't notice or looking in hindsight? Mm, yes, okay. I'm going to get real. Okay. <laughs> he pressured me sexually mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. and um, was not protecting me in that way. And that probably that should have been a red flag that he something was amiss mm-hmm. with his level of respect or love for me, as well as with. Um, that he had a, an addiction to pornography and a sex addiction. Hmm. So that, and again, I mean, but then you're dealing, you're on dual tracks here because this is a, you know, air quotes, an ostensibly Christian guy, church, community, in recovery or in, you know. Yeah. So it, again, you're like seeing something on the surface and it's almost like confusing. Like how can I, how do I match these two things up? Exactly. He was on the worship team at church. He was active in his, in serving at church, setting up sound. He was in a small group and active with that, and he had a mentor hmm. that he met with regularly. Yeah. Now, was there a point in, like, say, early on in, in marriage as stuff like this started cropping up? Um, because I know you, you know, you and I have talked about, you know, there was infidelity in the marriage, there was sex addiction, there was all of a sudden it just... It was like stones were uncovered. Was there any point where he's like, oh, yeah, okay, well, now I need to get help? Or don't worry, Christine, I'm going to turn around or I'm going to do what did how did that play out? Conversations like that after we were married, Mm -hmm. like as you started seeing, because clearly as stuff started cropping up and started affecting your marriage, you must have addressed it or said, you know, spoken up, said, hey, what's going on? What are we going to do here? The first time he was unfaithful in a smaller way was the summer after we got married. We got married in April in that summer. Um, something happened with one of my friends. Um, it was a very slow unravel. Mm-hmm. I don't think I realized about the porn until maybe a year or more into the marriage. Mm-hmm. And then other things that were... That came to light after that. So it was really snowball after finding out about the porn. Mm-hmm. And he was talking to ex exes and mm-hmm. involving prostitutes and mm. Okay. So let's um let's fast forward. I mean, this is gonna be like, you know, fire hose here. It's so weird like that we're doing it's like a segment of our show and let's just like delve into this. We probably should have done like five segments. But um so all of a sudden, um, you know, the the marriage ended. And actually, your now husband, Phil, his marriage also, infidelity and that on his wife's part, ended. 
you guys met online, which is a super fun story. I got to be um, be part of that journey and see, eight years later. See, <laughs> yes, right. Seven or eight it years wasn't after like, all, and then the... two weeks later we were no. <laughs> um, yes, and so and you did. I mean, and again, we can't even get into the amount of healing that you had to walk through personally, and where you were in community, and what you got help. I mean, that's for real. But all of a sudden, you're like, I'm going to go online. And I'm going to do this all over again. And I'm going to meet a guy. What gave you the courage to even trust that you could get married again, find a guy who loved the Lord, and this would not be a repeated uh, story part two? Honestly, I think it was the opposite way around. My initial instinct after, because I had codependency tendencies, was that I wanted to be in a relationship again. Mm -hmm. I wanted to find someone that would love me and God really had to unravel that and show me that men had been an idol for me, that I needed to be putting him first and wait on that. And so it wasn't until a few years later that I felt God had opened that up that I could be on social on the dating sites but at that point too I prayed and surrendered it to God and he kept me in the desert for another five years Mm -hmm. after that of of nothing so Mm -hmm. I think for me it was more the opposite that I wanted to right away and Mm -hmm. God had to tell me no you've got to deal with Mm -hmm. some of this aftermath and some of the healing and some of your own issues with making men an idol and finding my worth there instead of okay Pressing in with the singleness first. So what did that look like treading into that? Because I want you to tell the story about, you know, what Phil, <laughs> where Phil was like, you know, good a good guy who like soldiered through dating you <laughs> with your questions and your concerns. <laughs> but what, like you would go on dates with guys. What did that look like? Because you're, I'm assuming from what I remember, you were pretty no nonsense. Well, the last year that I was single before I met Phil, I had had only two dates that year, and both of them stood me up. Hmm. But um, the second one that stood me up had been introduced to me by a friend that had been on hospice and hmm. actually met him at her funeral. Wow. <laughs> As I was speaking at her funeral. Oh, wow. And he told me that he was apologetic, and he, and he said, I just wasn't ready. And the switch went for me that I realized right after that. That, that I was ready. And God really opened up the floodgates. And it turns out I had three dates hmm. on the day and a half um, time just after Christmas. And that's when the third date was Phil, my husband. And I didn't want to mess around. I hmm. didn't want, I would ask men in the first date or two if they had any addictions, any history of issues that they haven't dealt with. And usually if you shock someone with that question, (laughs) Mm -hmm. they will give an immediate, you can tell from their immediate response what the true answer may be. And usually in that moment when it's a surprise, they'll honestly answer when you're face to face. Mm. And so I had some men reveal things to me that were shocking, Mm -hmm. but it helped me to not go down that road again and not excuse things away Mm -hmm. that would be red flags if you knew them up front. Yeah. Well, and there are even like, I mean, there are online sites and apps where they give you that question out of the gate as something that you can ask. And I used to always use that one because I was, to my dismay, um, surprised by how many guys would say like either um, they were completely okay with premarital sex or they were in the middle of a porn addiction or whatever. And it's like, you just think you just you you think you're on worship team with a guy to Christine's point. And, you know, again, you don't know what people are struggling with. And I think there are ways that you can ask those questions that allow for grace. Yeah. For example, when was the last time you looked at porn? Mm -hmm. It acknowledges that in our society, it's a major problem. Mm -hmm. But have you given it to God and confessed and repented and turned away from it? Mm -hmm. Or is that a struggle that you're still immediately dealing with? Right. And what if you have turned it over? What steps are you making and continuing to take to give yourself accountability and to have community around you that is involved and that knows your business? Yeah. Yeah. I think the who knows is a great point. 
Um, Glenn, just a question related to that. Like, again, when we're, you know, and this could be men or women who are very eager to be in a relationship, to be dating, and they might think, okay, well, I'm going to pass over that. Maybe they do hear something like that. Someone's honest with them. And they say, well, you know, I'm sure they're working on that, or I'm sure I can change them, or I'm sure, you know, we'll get past this, or it's probably not as big as they're making it out to be. What are the dangers in that? Mm -hmm. And what, I mean, short of just getting up, running away and, you know, being crazy or whatever, how, how can they process that? And what's an appropriate response? Well, giving themselves some time to, to think about, okay, what, what's been shared, how um, forthright and how Heartfelt, and that can be a challenge sometimes because sometimes people can present it in a certain way where it can feel like, okay, yeah, they're really being truthful, but are they really? To what degree do they have that level of accountability? And I think an important element of the accountability is it needs to be someone who can ask them the challenging questions, but is not going to beat them over the head. Mm -hmm. And what what steps is that person taking? So that sobriety, if we're talking about pornography, that sobriety from pornography is present. And it's not just about not doing something. It's about what replaces. You know, there's a passage in Scripture, I think it's where Paul is talking about people who had been thieves and they had stolen. And he said, you know, what I want you to do is now be in a place where not only it's not about avoiding stealing, but it's also about what you can provide to others in their position of need. So it's really the positive side of it, not just the absence of an addictive behavior. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. So for that person who, I mean, again, this kind of gets back to your first response earlier in the segment where you said that 20% rule, really to say, well, it's okay. It's not that big of a deal. I can change them is really a delusion. I mean, at the, mm -hmm. I mean, again, if they're not, you can't do the heavy lifting for them. Right. You cannot fix someone. You cannot move them into a desire to do the right thing and, and pursue God with their own addiction. Amen, Lisa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's good. And it really is important for, because sometimes what people will do is I'll say, well, okay, well, will you be my accountability person? Mm -hmm. You know, and that's not the purpose of that individual right. uh, dating relationship. Um, but who do they have to hold them accountable? Are they willing to take those steps? Are they willing to dig deeper and understand why, not just the, not just the what? Yeah. Yeah, that's so good because again, you cannot. You're, you know, to your point, Glenn. You're not their therapist, and right. they probably don't don't want you to be. Now, if 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 it's if it's a scenario where people are dating, I'm not saying that that other person should not know, mm -hmm. but there's a difference between, you know, uh, being the accountability person and and being a person who is told mm -hmm. when uh, a person does fall short in a particular area. Yeah. So what would you both say about, you know, for the person who maybe is dating someone and they're like, well, I don't know, this guy or this girl, they seem great, but it's really, you know, I don't, it's not like we've talked about super deep stuff or whatever. I mean, are there any things you should ask or look out for to see some warning signs? Like what would you say are some good um, practical places to go kind of in the sense of whether that's in conversation or just in keeping your eyes open um, for something that might be potentially harmful or something you need to watch out for? Well, I think something that gives you the freedom to ask more questions is your level of transparency yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, no individual is beyond the pale of sin. And so, you know, what may be the struggles? And if you're being open and transparent about what are the challenges you're experiencing, then when you do ask a question, hopefully you're going to get um, a greater level of honesty from the other person. Yeah. My answer was similar. I was going to bring up if there are things in the dark mm -hmm. that are hidden or that aren't shared. Yeah. It almost seems like even the if there's all of a sudden a wall up or a reticence to even talk about counseling or accountability or whatever, I would say that would be a red flag because Absolutely. a lot of times people will try to deflect or get into another conversation or be like, well, you know, no, that's or downplay, you know, in, in some instances. Um, I feel like I've been in scenarios where I felt like, hmm, I feel like not really everything's being said here or something. So, um 
Okay, well, final uh, kind of final question here is just then what is the what's the encouragement and the hope for a person who's like, well, okay, I just heard Christine's story. I'm going to be single the rest of my life. Absolutely. Do I not want her story? Just the fear of like, what if I choose wrong? Or what if I make missteps? Or what if I don't know if I don't ask enough if I don't see it? um, What would be your encouragement to that person? First of all, I would say, if you've had any sort of a past like that, get into some counseling. Overturn the stones and look and see where you may have been ignoring red flags or where you may have contributed to the to things moving forward when they probably should have paused. Mm-hmm. Where if they have any sort of personal need that drove you forward that wasn't that should have more properly been turned over to God mm-hmm. and and surrendering it to God. I, again, he took me to the desert for five years before he allowed me and brought Phil into my life and caused him to pursue me. Mm. And I really do feel that was his doing, not my making things happen like I had in the past with prior relationships or mm-hmm. for pushing things forward that I should have let go. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. And if it's a scenario where you have to have a relationship, that's one's own red flag. Um, If it's coming out of the fullness of what God is doing in your heart and life and you see that in another person, um, then, you know, especially if you see true repentance and you see true steps. Now, I still think it's valuable to give it the time that it needs, but God is a God of new beginnings for people. And because people, you know, I think of the verse in... uh, I think it's Second Corinthians, it says, it gives a list of sins, and it says, and such were some of you, but you have been washed, you have been cleansed. God is in the business of restoring broken hearts and, mm-hmm. and restoring uh, obedience and uh, a, a living relationship with himself. Mm. Very good. And restoration is true, and it happens, but he also warns us to guard our hearts. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of your advice has been wise with the time um, giving that time and seeing what will happen in, say, a year of recovery or of mm. of walking out sanctification with God yeah. allows us to guard our hearts and, and save them. Yeah. And just that signal of like, man, is this other person really inviting people in? Not just because you're telling them to and not just because they feel like it's the Christian thing to do, but because they really know mm. that they need it. I think that's so good. And we all... We all need that. Um, And it's not, you know, I've said this so many times on Boundless, success isn't just white knuckling and making a relationship work. It's really seeing God work in that relationship. It's not, I mean, I've had relationships that needed to end and I felt like I was such a failure because I felt like I should have made them work. And it's like, no, if God doesn't want it to work, you let it go. You know, it's not. (laughs) That's not for you. So that's a good point. Well, folks, um, obviously, we wouldn't want to end today without giving you a recommendation to if you're in this spot right now, whether you are someone who is like, I don't know that I should be dating because here's my struggle right now. And I haven't gone after it and I haven't given it to the Lord and I haven't gotten help. Um, Or you're that person that, you know, like Christine, being very honest about codependency and the fact that she was, you know, very willingly putting up with stuff because she had needs that she was trying to compensate for in these relationships. That is a legit struggle as well. And so we want to let you know about focusonthefamily.com slash get help, or you can call um, 1-800-THE-LETTER-A and the word family and get a free consultation from one of our licensed professional counselors, the team, just like Glenn, uh, his team, such great people who will hear you out, give you a little bit of guidance, and also probably set you on a path towards someone in your area who can even continue care for you, and they can give you a referral in that direction. If you go to boundless.org, you can search for 755 and uh, get that uh, information and those resources. Well, you too. Thank you so much for weighing in on this. I think that's really helpful. And also, just for those of you listening, I mean, doesn't that just not make you feel alone? I mean, (laughs) I think that's so great, too. So, Christine, thank you so much. And Glenn. You're welcome.
Well, we are opening up our inbox as we finish out the show, and we have got Counselor Jeremy Keaton back to answer this week's question. Hey, Jeremy. Nice to be with you. Thanks. Yay. Always great to have you and or one of your team members. Um, We get so much great wisdom uh, from you and professional advice as well. So this week, probably no exception because we've got another listener with a really good question for you. Um, And so this person says, what advice do you have for how to respond when a friend confesses to quote, struggling with a pornography addiction. I'm a young woman in my mid-20s, and I feel overwhelmed and frustrated that most of the Christian young men and some women around me seem to be trapped in this. Some of them have even gone through church programs and counseling. I'm doing everything I know to do and have tried pointing them to helpful resources. But how do I respond to when a friend confesses a relapse and I see evidence that he or she needs a serious heart change? Hmm. Well, so much that could be said here. I I hear that sense of feeling overwhelmed and frustrated in her question. Uh, and yes, this is an all-too-common problem. Pornography is everywhere in, in our culture. It's an addictive thing. And I want to say there's many and various reasons why people can be prone to this sin area. And one is we're all sexual beings, and, and sexuality is designed and made by God to be interesting uh, to us. But also there's often root issues. There's a person's sexual history or their sense of even shame about failing in this area that causes them to just try to hide it, and, and therefore they stay trapped in it. So if someone is talking to you about this, um, I say receiving them with care and compassion while pointing them to a better way is key. But that better way isn't just, hey, try harder, or, you know, you know you got to stop this, right? What's the deal? Uh, relapse, they do occur. I've worked with, with people in recovery, and while we don't plan for relapses or we, we don't script them as absolutely necessary, in a recovery process and in a habitual sin struggle, Relapses are more common than not, and it's really about learning from the lapse and having a plan of action and insight as a result of it. So when you think of your friend, you want to think of what's their trajectory. Are they investing in a plan of recovery or just sort of glibly normalizing this pattern? And and that difference is, is key. Um, But I encourage, Lisa, a grace-based recovery uh, response, receiving the friend in a grace-based way, and then asking them, what are you doing in response to this? It may not be this person's role um, or the nature of their friendship, but they need a trained counselor or support group to help them if this person is not part of their recovery team. They need a plan of recovery. So in the recovery groups that I lead where we do check-ins, when there's been uh, something occur that's a breach of integrity, we will unpack that. And there's a specific way to learn from those events rather than waste those events. And first is even categorizing this, it's helpful. Was this a slip or was this a lapse or was this a full relapse? And there's a difference even in that spectrum. You know, I I slipped, I repented quickly, I'm confessing, I'm getting back on track, I'm using my tools to move back into where I would like to be. Or is this a lapse where a period of time went by and I, I, I did not confess it? Or is this a full-blown relapse where I have just dove back into the addictive process. And then the response can vary based upon what type of uh, situation we're dealing with. But we unpack things like, what were the triggers? Uh, What legitimate need were you meeting in an illegitimate way? Uh, What are your alternatives to acting out next time? And have you built that menu of options of behaviors that are replacement behaviors when you feel this temptation again? What was happening at a heart level, not just a behavior level? What is it that you learn from that as we as we unpack this? And really, the spiritual formation piece. She mentioned the heart being uh, what is of interest, not just behavior change. Where are you with Christ and the Holy Spirit in this now? How is he receiving you? What What heart change is important, not just behavior change? These are the types of conversations that the individual needs to be pointed to And hopefully they have a recovery community that is offering this. Or 
maybe this relationship is appropriate for these kinds of conversations. I'm not sure, but these kinds of conversations are what are needed when there is a relapse. Yeah, that's so good. And it just reminds me, I mean, I love what you said about the whole, the the heart, you know, considering the heart, because again, we, we so often focus on behaviors and it's very easy for us as the onlooker to say, well, they just need to stop it. They just have to change. Why don't they just, and of course we know that sin you know, I've, I've heard it said many times, you have to have the want to. I mean, you really want to crucify your sin. Otherwise, you're just dabbling and jousting at sin, as, as some have said. But at the same time, you know, caution to our listener that she cannot effect change in someone's Correct. heart. <laughs> she cannot will someone to change. She cannot will them to repent. She cannot. So she's going to also have to have a little amount of distance in the sense of, you know, it's not it's not going to be her her journey. Let the Holy Spirit do its work and, you know, definitely be an encourager in that. But, um, you know, it's it's sometimes easy for us to start comparison games of like, well, you know, my sin, I tried, I worked on my sin or I did, you know, and, and that's not very productive. So, yeah that balance of receiving with grace, but then moving towards, hey, here are the things I hope you're investing in. And um, again, I don't think this person is asking how to be an accountability partner or how to be a recovery partner, but I did want to just share in this context the types of things that an individual needs to be hearing if they're going through a lapse of some kind in their, and that they shared that with you is pretty sacred. Yeah, very good, very good. All right, folks. Um, Well, that is it for this week's show. And, you know, we finish out with these questions, which are questions directly from you. And of course, other elements of the show are supposed to strengthen you in your walk with the Lord and in your relationships with other people. And so we hope that they are doing that. In fact, if you have been enjoying the show, whether you're a longtime listener or brand new, we would love it if you would hop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. If the show is something that you think others can benefit from, your review will allow other people to find the show and maybe give it a chance and so go over to apple podcasts and leave your review even now as you're thinking about it in the meantime i will see you around next week i'm lisa anderson for the boundless show the boundless show is a production of boundless.org focus on family